Well, a good story, in my opinion, and I am no literary critic, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I, I'm inclined to believe that ends are particularly important. Um, I've read quite a few trendy novels which, uh, frankly, just stop and leave me thinking, well, what was that all about? Um, there was no end, so I was left with a load of loose ends, and nothing got tied up, and I was basically very dissatisfied. Um, maybe you like that sort of thing. I'm just not sophisticated enough to enjoy it. Um, the end can actually change everything. Quite often, uh, if you're watching a film or reading a book, it's not until the end that some of the scenes earlier on in the story gain their full significance. And you find yourself thinking, so that was what that was all about. Ah. So the end, the end is pretty important. And uh, that's true of the story of the church. Now, the story of the church obviously is not um, a trendy novel or indeed a film. Uh, you could perhaps make a film of it, but it'd be very long. But... The story of the church, as we've traced it all the way through scripture, has an end, and we need to see what it is. Well, let me just uh, remind you of the story um, through the use of Peter Comont's trendy graphics. So, you'll remember we started off by looking at creation, uh, where God had made human beings to enjoy perfect relationship with him and with each other. We saw that God's design was always for community and relationships. But we also saw uh, that actually there was a a catastrophic and senseless rebellion by human beings against that ideal order. But one which God did not allow to completely destroy his plans. Instead, he called out Abraham and determined to make his descendants a nation which would be the community of God on earth. That happens way back in Genesis 12. So we're a long way back in the Bible. The story of that nation, which becomes Israel, is frankly one that's marked by some successes and many failures. Ultimately, the nation is measured against the standards that God has given in the law and is found to have failed to be God's community, to have failed to represent that perfect community that God wanted. So the prophets come and basically proclaim, there is someone coming who will do it properly. A king and a servant is coming who will make God's community vision happen, and this time it will not be allowed to fail. Well, we saw Jesus is that king and servant, God's own son, come into the world. And we saw that through his death and resurrection, he forgives sin and gathers people from all nations, not just the descendants of Abraham anymore, but all nations, into a community for himself. And that is the church. And Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, pours out his spirit on the church and gives it a mission in the world. God's community is established in the world. I want to suggest, though, that if we stop there and don't go on to see the end of the story, then we we could end up a little bit confused. We probably won't get it. One thing we might think is, so... Did Jesus just kind of wind up the church community and then let it go along its way? Is he just off the scene now? Is it now all down to us as the church community to sort out the world and make everything right? To be honest, if, I, I, I think that's a, that's a high calling for us. Higher than we could ever actually manage. We can't fix the world. Or, or we might think, um, 
we might actually look back on the history of the church and think, see, this has been pretty ambivalent. I mean, there have been great things that the church has done. The church has been instrumental in abolishing slavery twice, once in the Roman Empire and once in the British. The church has been instrumental in bringing about welfare reform and social change. The church has also been instrumental in calling crusades, in supporting repressive regimes, in ignoring the plight of the poor. Actually, if we looked at the history of the church, we'd have to say it's pretty mixed. Shades of grey, high points and low points. Well, that will be, I think, our enduring impression unless we look at the end of the story to make sense of it all and to see where it's going. So that's where we're going. We're going to the end. Uh, Revelation 21 and 22 are obviously the place to go because um, they are literally the end of the book and they're the end of the book because they're also the end of the story. And that's the best way to arrange a book. Uh, So Revelation 21 and 22. If you read through the book of Revelation, uh, you'll find that you see the end of the world played out in actually many times in different symbolic patterns. Uh, But when you get to chapters 21 and 22, you're actually past the end, if you like. The end of the world has happened. Jesus has returned, wrapped everything up. And so in Revelation 21 and 22, we're looking at the new beginning, what the Bible calls new creation. New creation is where it's all going to. So we need to look at that if we're going to understand the unfolding story of the church and if we're going to understand what our role as a local church here in East Oxford is. Okay? Good. So, the big question I want to answer is where is the church going? Where is the church going? What is its final destiny? So, we're going to hit Revelation 21 and uh, I am going to play tour guide for you because the best way that we can get to grips with this uh, chapter is to just work our way through it and see what what is going on. Now, this is a a chapter and a a whole book, actually. Revelation is a whole book, rich in imagery, drawn from the Old Testament and from other places. Um, We need to be careful about approaching it with a very sort of literalistic mindset. But if we look at these images, we'll see what God is trying trying to tell us about the future of the church. And it is wonderful. So, I'm going to work through it pretty much step by step. And I just, like a tour guide, point out some interesting features to you and then we'll move on to the next bit. Also like a tour guide, I have insufficient time to do justice to any of it, so we'll be rushing through a little bit, but hopefully it'll leave you with a flavour of where we're going. So, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, it's important that we start here, because actually... We've seen all the way through that the story of the church is tied up with the story of the whole of creation, tied up with the whole world. And actually, in in Romans 8, we see really clearly that creation suffers because of human sin, just as human beings suffer. And creation itself, in some way, looks forward to the day when there will be restoration. So before we see how the church fits in here at the end, we need to see this is all-embracing. It is the whole of creation that is being restored. Everything is being restored. A new heaven and a new earth. That's a wonderful thing. There was no longer any sea. That's important, but I don't have time to go into it. New Jerusalem. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Um, It's a fantastic image. I don't know if you can imagine what it would look like to have a city that was dressed as a bride. It's um, what we might call mixing metaphors just a little bit. Uh, But it's important. John is drawing on, and, and this vision is drawing on, all of the background of the Old Testament. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city of the great king. Jerusalem was where God's presence was. Jerusalem was the centre, geographically, of God's purposes in the world for the whole of the Old Testament, right up to the time of Jesus. But Jerusalem also stood for the community of God's people. And here, John sees a new Jerusalem. So just as the whole of creation has been restored, so God's community is now fully restored to what it ought to be. And it descends out of heaven to be the centrepiece of this new creation. Note, important, it comes down out of heaven into the new creation. I think sometimes we think that the future of the church means being taken out of the world and into some sort of airy fairy place where there are probably clouds and possibly the dress code is um, a white dress and the main hobby that's available to you is harp playing. But that is, that is not what is being portrayed here. The new Jerusalem comes down into the new creation. This is a very material, earthy thing. And there it is, dressed as a bride. Dressed as a bride because this vision shows us that everything that has happened in the church up until now has just been the period where it was sort of engaged to Jesus. The church was was betrothed to Jesus, to use the biblical language. We're waiting for the wedding day. The day when it all finally becomes real. And that is what is being portrayed here. The new Jerusalem comes out of heaven, dressed up, ready for that marriage to Jesus. And obviously the marriage to Jesus is symbolic in and of itself. But what does it symbolise? Well, it's the closest human relationship that we know of, isn't it? Marriage. And the Bible is telling us At the end, our relationship as a church to Jesus will be as close as that. It will be union with him. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. You could trace this particular theme all the way through the Bible. God will be their God, they will be his people. It comes up again and again and again. Um, Leviticus 11, 11 and 12, speaking about the tabernacle, God says, I will put my dwelling place among you, I will not abhor you, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Now, in the Old Testament sense, what that meant was, God will be inside the tabernacle, the big tent in the middle of the camp of Israel. And where God goes, Israel will go. And where Israel goes, God will go. He will be their God and they will be his people. He will walk among them. Well, that's pretty exciting. I think, what you think, I think if God was living in the tent next door, that would be quite exciting. But as we go through, this gets developed. This gets developed and the prophets look forward to a new covenant 
where they say, no, this time really. Jeremiah says over and over again, they will be my people and I will be their God. And now he's not talking about God living in the tent next door. He's talking about God being intimately present with his people. And he's looking forward to the day when that happens. And we know, we know that in the New Testament we see some of that. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in believers. But even that amazing presence of the Spirit in believers is described as a down payment or a foretaste or a first fruits. It's pointing forward to this time when finally God will say, I will be with you, I will be your God, you will be my people and nothing is going to get in the way of that. There will be intimate relationship between God and his community his church. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In all honesty, could anything be more amazing? Everything that currently mars my enjoyment of life Everything that currently mars my enjoyment of God, everything that sort of forms a cloud on the horizon, is gone. From the smallest tear to the final enemy of death, all done away with. And it's so personal. God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Everything that the members of the church have suffered in the world, everything that might cause a painful memory, God himself will wipe away every tear. I um, used to have, when I was little, a a children's Bible, um, which had little pictures in it, little cartoon pictures every now and again. And uh, there was one that went with this chapter, which um, had uh, somebody going up to the gate of heaven, I can't remember exactly how it was, but I remember there was an angel there with a handkerchief. And I, I, thought, I used to think that was great. I used to think that was a wonderful image. Of course, it's completely not what the text says. Um, he's not sending out the angels with the handkerchiefs. God himself, himself will wipe away every tear from their eye. Nothing sad goes in here. sounds like a a future that I want to be part of. We do have to to pause. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. This is not meant to destroy our enjoyment of this picture of the future. It's not meant to make us fearful. But it is meant to remind us that when in the world we see the church gathered and then many people on the outside, that's a provisional picture of the fact that one day there will be a final division. It will happen and we need to be realistic about it. This future is not universal. Okay, it embraces the whole of creation. 
but it is the future of the church. Not everybody will be in the New Jerusalem. I think that is mentioned here for two reasons. Partly because how do you maintain a perfect community? There must be a boundary. But partly because John is saying, make sure you're on the inside. Make sure this isn't you. Make sure you're in a place where you'll be glad to see God and not terrified of his anger. In other words, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And these verses are not for you. The angel uh, then actually gives a, a little tour of the city. Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. I won't read through that whole description, but you get the impression of huge riches. There's this enormous list of precious and semi-precious stones, which I cruelly made Mel read. Um, You did great, well done. Uh, the streets are described as being of the finest gold so, so refined and pure that they're translucent the gates are pearls this is, this is richness now when the Bible picks up that sort of symbolic language you've got to say it is, it is reaching for the most wonderful thing that we can currently imagine and saying like that, but more so. The Apostle Paul says that um, no eye has seen or ear has heard. It's never entered into the, to, to the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So even with this vision, we're just seeing a, a representation, something that is pushing the boundaries of our imagination and saying, imagine the richest things you can think of. Imagine the most wonderful layout of a city you can, you can hold in your mind like that but bigger and better and more so I don't know what any of these precious stones are by the way but it sounds like they look awesome there's a few other things about the city um, did you notice that the gates are written, have written on them the names of the twelve tribes of Israel and the foundations have written on them the names of the apostles of the Lamb. In other words, this city gathers together the faithful people of Old Testament Israel and the New Testament Church into one community, the people of God throughout the whole of biblical history, standing together in the New Jerusalem. The foundations have the names of the apostles on them because this city is built on the apostolic testimony to Jesus, A, a, a detail which you might think, what on earth is that about? But I think is Twelve precious stones on the foundations, these twelve precious stones. Where else do you get a collection of twelve precious stones in four groups of three? Um, the answer is in Exodus chapter 28, and uh, you can go and look at it later. It's the breastplate of Aaron. Aaron has this amazing breastplate with twelve uh, precious stones on it. And he's to wear it whenever he goes into the presence of God. Because... It says, in this way he will bring remembrance of the tribes of Israel to God. 
Okay? So the 12 precious stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And when Aaron comes in wearing this breastplate, it's to bring to God's remembrance his people and his community and cause him to act on their behalf. Okay, so that's quite cool. But Aaron in the olden days, right, used to go in and out of the tabernacle. In and out, in and out. And the implication is, he goes in to say, look, Lord, the 12 tribes of your people are here with you in your presence. Then he has to go out again. And actually, to go in, he has to make this huge sacrifice. And it's all very messy, and there's lots of blood involved, because Aaron is a sinner, and he can't be there all the time. And the people of Israel are sinners, and they can't enjoy perfect relationship with God. Now here, the 12 stones are not on Aaron's breastplate, going in and out of God's presence. They're the very foundations of the city. God's community now is always in God's presence, always enjoying him. You might think that's tenuous, but I don't, so I'm going to say it, don't we? Let's move on. Uh, we'll skip over a large bit of measuring. Did you notice, incidentally, that um, he measured its wall? It was 144 cubits thick. That's a very thick wall. Um, by man's measurement, which the angel was using, it, it just conjures up an image of the angel had two measuring rods. Do you want to show you angel measurements? Or it would be more useful if I do it in human measurements, actually. 144 cubits. But that wall, that chunky wall, that says security, doesn't it? It says, from this point on, nothing threatens God's people. Nothing. Let me move on. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No temple. Now that's, remember, this is the new Jerusalem. What was the best thing about the old Jerusalem? Well, it had a temple in it, right? That was why Jerusalem was so important in the Old Testament. The temple was there, which meant that God was there. The new Jerusalem, no temple. Doesn't that seem odd? The point is that the whole of the city is a temple. I don't know if you noticed, you may not have done because I skipped over it. Um, this city is a remarkably odd shape. Uh, it's it's 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia, which, okay, so it's a square city. That's a bit odd in itself. But then it says, and it was as high as it was wide. So this city, I don't know how this works, and I can't imagine it any more than I can imagine a city dressed up as a bride, but this city is cube-shaped. And the reason that is significant in the context of there being no temple is because inside the temple, first you have um, the the outer court of the temple where anybody could go, provided they were clean. Then you had uh, the inner court of the temple where any Jews could go. Actually, I think only Jewish men could go. Then you go into the temple itself and then right inside is the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest goes in there and only once a year. And the Holy of Holies is where God actually is. His presence is manifested there. So by saying there's no temple in this cube-shaped city, Revelation is telling us the whole of God's community is going to be a perfect temple where God is intimately present to each one. Not mediated through a particular building, but there always. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Why would there need to be a building where we could go to meet with God when Jesus himself and his Father are there with us? Let's move on. 
city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So, no sun, no moon. It says later on, actually, there's no night either. There's always light. There's no sun and no moon. And the light actually comes from the Lamb. Now here, the, the, the image is like the glory of God, focused on the Lamb, that is Jesus, shines out to the whole of God's community and show, gives them light. It's, it's a bit like if um, you read Genesis 1. I don't know if you ever noticed in Genesis 1, God uh, makes light, day one, waits three days and then makes the sun. Have you ever noticed that? So, so you get this impression that actually God made light and then he sort of focused the light in on the sun. The sun was going to be the focus of the light. And here I think we're saying the glory of God is focused on the face of the Lamb. And from there it shines out over the whole community. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it, says John. The glory and honour of the nations. Actually, when the whole of creation is renewed, the Bible says all of the cultural riches of humanity are also renewed and brought into this new community. Nothing worthwhile is lost. No wonderful work of art or anything like that is ultimately lost. The kings of the earth will bring the glory of the nations into the new Jerusalem. Kind of, for me at least, sheds a different light on just daily life. The Bible doesn't give us a picture where the church gets taken out of the world and everything else is left behind. It gives us a picture where it matters what we do. Human cultures are represented in this new Jerusalem. How does, it, uh, how does it sound to you, the church's future? On a, on a, on a scale of uh, 1 to 10, 10 being uh, the best thing you can think of and, and 1 being um, the worst, uh, where would you put it? It's not a rhetorical question. Got some 11s. Got some 11s. I think this, this future pretty easily slips out of our minds. Look, we're, we're people who live in the present. Um, that's an absurd thing to say because it's just so obviously true. But look, you are chained to the present. You can never, ever get into the past or the future. Try it now. No, it's still the present. It will always be the present for you, um, back to the future notwithstanding. It will always be the present for you. And so we get caught up so easily in the things that just need doing today, the things that I have to think about this week. We can barely plan beyond the end of the year, or in my case, the end of like the service. So to lift our eyes and to remember this glorious future is waiting for God's church, that's a hard thing for us to do, but it's an important thing for us to do. It makes sense of the whole of the rest of the story, from this vantage point, we will be able to look back over everything that's happened and everything that God has done and say, I get it. I see how it all fits together. Even now, even with our knowledge of what the end will be like, we may not be able to do that. But at least we know that one day we will be able to. One day we will look back and it will all fit together. Well, 
Um, I want to just make two points off the back of this. There's, there's more we could say, loads more. I could talk for hours about this stuff, um, but, but you wouldn't appreciate it, and um, so I'll stop. But I want to make two points. Look, if this is the glorious future towards which the church is headed, if this is where we are going, we need to bear in mind we are not there yet. Now that may seem obvious to you, um, because when you walked here this morning, you didn't walk down streets of translucent gold. Uh, You stepped over the detritus of a Saturday night in East Oxford. But we're not there yet, and that matters in a number of ways. I've, uh, on several, at several points in my life, I've found myself pretty hacked off with the church. Um, Brothers and sisters, I don't mean you necessarily, um, but the church in general. Maybe you, sometimes. (laughs) And I read some of the descriptions of the church that you get in the New Testament. And then I turn back from that to to us as we are in this room. And it would be easy for me to think, we're not it. We're not it. This This is not what the New Testament promised me. Look at this. And I might think, this, this is what guarantees this glorious future. This is the way that God is recovering humanity from their own sinful rebellion. Really? It'd be easy um, for us to become disillusioned, wouldn't it? Church doesn't meet our expectations. Isn't the church meant to be a loving community? But to be honest, I find people a bit bitchy. Again, not you, beloved brothers and sisters. But maybe sometimes. Uh, Isn't the church meant to be a place where there are people who are motivated by a deep care for the world? The sort of love that Jesus showed? But I look around us and I find that most of the time we're wrapped up in our own little concerns. I include myself in that. It would be easy, to be honest, for us to walk away from the church to say, it doesn't work. It's not doing what we wanted it to do. It's not doing what Jesus said it would do. And when that happens, we need to stick with it. We need to remember, we're going to a perfect future. We're not there yet. We're going to a place where every tear will be wiped away. There are still plenty of tears in the church right now. We're going to a place where there'll be perfect security and nothing to fear. There's still a lot of fear in all of our hearts right now. We're going to a place where we will see God perfectly. Right now I sometimes go three or four days at a time without being sure that God even exists. Get the reality into the perspective of the future. Okay, I look around the church, it is not what I want it to be. It is not, I think, what God wants it to be. But we're on the way. Can I encourage you that if you do feel disillusioned with the church, the answer is not to pull back, which is what we so often do. The answer is, get stuck in. This is where God is working. This is the community that is going towards this glorious future. Whatever it looks like right now, get stuck in. Don't pull away. Don't pull away from us because we're imperfect. You're imperfect too, believe it or not. 
Can I just warn you as well, um, not to uh, talk up the church too much. I think um, we as Christians, we're excited about church, hopefully when it's going well. And we can tend to give the impression that church is the answer to all of the world's problems. If only people would get into the community of the church, then they would see that the world isn't so bad and they'd have a happy life. It isn't true, is it? Um, I hope you can see that in the cold light of day. We need to remember, the church is not that place. It is going to that place. Do you see the distinction? We encourage people to come to church and to get involved in the church community because the church is the place where we encourage one another to keep looking forward to that place where God wipes away every tear. See what I'm saying? Jesus is the one who fixes everything, not the church. We're not there yet. We need to be realistic about that with ourselves. We need to have realistic expectations. And we need to be realistic with people on the outside. We mustn't paint an unduly rosy picture of church life. If we do, when people do come in, they will be disappointed and they will think we're frauds and they'll walk out again. So, we're not there yet. But, if this is where the church is going, it should look like it is going there. Now, this in a sense is to uh, contradict everything I just said. We cannot sit back and say, well, we're not there yet, therefore obviously we're imperfect and we don't live up to what the church ought to be, but what can we do? We'll, uh, we'll sit back and wait for Jesus to come and sort it out. We cannot do that. If we are going to this future, it should look like that is the direction we're headed in. Look, if we are going to a future where every tear is wiped away by God... The church should be a community where tears are wiped away. Not all of them and not completely and not forever because we are not God. But it should be a place where the mourning are comforted. If we're going to a place where there will be the perfect security of those 144 cubit thick walls, we should be people who don't fear. We'll never get there perfectly. Let's encourage one another to live as if this is the place we're going to. It's actually a bit stronger than that. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. This future, this wonderful future, has rushed forward to meet us in the present. If anyone is in Christ, this new creation has already happened in you. And people should be able to see that. It's not fulfilled yet. We're not with Jesus seeing him face to face yet. But people should be able to see in our community life new creation and a signpost to the final new creation that is going to make everything well. Are you with me? I'm glad. I want to finish just by saying one thing and then three things. But they're all short, so don't worry. The first thing I want to say is Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back. I think we don't say that often enough. Jesus is coming back. Everything, the significance of the whole biblical story of the church and the significance of everything that we do on a Sunday morning and throughout the week as a church community rests on the fact, not the idea, but the absolute fact and reality and truth that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back for his people. He is coming back for his creation. 
We must remember it. We must remember it. Let's try to encourage one another to remind each other through this week. When you see members of the church this week, remind them. Jesus is coming back. Because we need to be living in the light of that as a church community and as individuals through the week. Not, can I just say, uh, I've taken my watch off so I don't know how far over time I am, quite a bit, never mind. Not, not as if Jesus is a big countdown clock in the sky who is our enemy and we have to rush around getting stuff done because any minute now the clock is going to run out and Jesus is going to arrive and ruin everything. It is not like that. Jesus comes to restore all things and we must look forward to his return. Our job is not the restoration of all things. Jesus will do it. He is coming back to do it. Our job is threefold. Our job is to watch. Jesus says it over and over again. Watch. Stay alert. Watch. Expect it. Live as if it could happen now. Live as if it could happen before I finish speaking, which at this rate is quite likely. (laughs) Be the community which expects Jesus. Yeah? Community which looks forward. To witness We must witness. We must show the world around us that we have this future. Actually, I really do believe that the best way we can do that is by living as if we have this future in our community life together and inviting people in to see it. Where in the world is there hope apart from in the church? Where is there a certain hope for the future apart from in the church? Let's show people. And our final duty is to pray. We must pray. The the very end of Revelation. He who testifies to these things, Jesus, says, Yes, I am coming soon. And the response of the church? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us watch and pray for his coming, because that is what our community is all about. That is why we're gathered here, because he is coming for us.